But hear this from Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, even as was just mentioned, the fact that we who were once enemies of God, far from you, victims of the curse, victims of our own sin, have been welcomed into your presence. We are seated at your table, and not merely as spectators, but as participators. We are welcomed into your presence as family, as sons, and as daughters. What a radical transformation that we who were once dead in our sin and our trespasses can find life and life abundantly in you. Father, we are grateful that we can gather here as a church in Milton on this Sunday morning. And we commit ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to your word as we do every Sunday. And we ask that you would use it to teach us, to mold us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, who we want to look more and more like with every passing moment. Would you help us to open our hearts and our minds to you and your word and what you would teach us today? And would the words from the Bible this morning have ramifications and impact on our lives for the weeks, for the months, even the years and decades to come? We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, for those that I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Dan, and just on behalf of Rachel and our family, just want to say how great it's been to be uh, not only serving here, but just to be counted as members among Milton Church. We are reminded uh, weekly and even daily of just our immense gratitude to be able to worship as a family in Christ with you all, uh, and I'm glad to be here this morning uh, preaching for us out of the book of Genesis. If you haven't already done so, please open your Bibles to Genesis um, 
We'll actually be looking a little bit at chapter five to start before we get into chapter six this morning. Uh, Because before we get into chapter six, uh, we have to spend some time in chapter five in order to understand the context that Moses is setting up for his audience. We're not gonna read the whole genealogy for the sake of time, uh, but I do want us to see up front that chapter five is critical in our understanding of chapter six and the flood account, which we'll be looking at next week. If you're anything like me, you've probably skipped over genealogies more than once in your Bible reading plan, Uh, but this is a good chance for us to see that genealogies are really one of the primary ways uh, that we can see God working um, on on a grand scale in redemptive history over time. So we can look at a specific narrative and see, okay, did God did these instances with these people, but we can also zoom out to see the bigger picture through a genealogy, and that's how we see God is actually orchestrating a series of lives, a series of families uh, to bring about his kingdom purposes. And you'll remember last week, In chapter four, we also ended with a brief genealogy. We had the genealogy of Cain. And most genealogies in the Bible typically uh, come in forms of seven or 10 of the generations that are listed or multiples of the two. So Cain's genealogy last week was seven. There were seven men in Cain's genealogy. And here in chapter five, Seth's generation has 10. 10 in chapter five. And a genealogy is the Bible's way of moving along the historical narrative. It's like pressing fast forward if you used to have like a tape deck or record player, not a record player, but pressing fast forward to skip ahead to your favorite part in the song or a show or something like that. So it's moving the timeline rapidly forward in order to get us towards uh, something important, something significant. So it moves things forward And it says, what's coming up next, when we slow down, it's gonna be important. It's gonna be worth taking our time to go through. And many genealogies in the Old Testament typically end with a person of great significance. And in the Hebrew writing, a genealogy is kinda like a, a chapter heading. It begins a new section. And so we see in this chapter five, We've got the bridging of these two accounts. We had the creation account in the garden, which which closed out with Cain's brief genealogy. And now we have this new account beginning with Seth's genealogy. And that actually bridges two significant covenants in the Bible. We had the covenant to Adam in the garden. And then we fast forward through this generation. And now we are landing at the next covenant, which is the covenant of Noah. A few interesting things for us to just pull out briefly from chapter five. The longest life, the good Sunday school answer in this genealogy was Methuselah, yep, 969 years. I mean, most of these guys live to be almost a millennium, which is crazy, except for Lamech, the father of Noah, who only lived to be 777, which is still pretty good. Also, side note, this Lamech, not to be confused with the Lamech from Cain's genealogy, totally different, separate guy, and you'll also notice there's Enoch, 
who lived to be 365 years old, but he actually didn't die because God took him. Everyone else in this genealogy died, although it took them an incredibly long time to do so, right? I mean, we have to imagine if they wondered whether the curse of death was actually real. You know, would they doubt God's sincerity in saying, you will surely die when truly century after century after century after century, you haven't died yet? It must have been a real shock, other than the instances of of murder, like we saw in Abel's life, when people actually died of natural causes because it was going on for so long. Death was truly a rarity. And yet we see in chapter 5 that death cannot be outrun. There's no outrunning death. It came for everyone save Enoch. Even Methuselah, who lived so long, even Lamech, Noah's own father, likely didn't live long enough to see the flood. But in the opening verses of chapter 5, we see reasons for hope. Verses 1 and 2 clearly echo back to the creation account in the Garden of Eden. So here, even after the fall, God is reminding the world that his creation work and his covenant promise have not been forgotten. Even after this genealogy, starting a new section, God is pointing back to his promise in the garden to say the seed of the woman, the lineage of the promise, will not go through Cain, rather it will go through Seth, and it will continue. In Cain's genealogy, you'll remember the seventh man, the last man, was our other Lamech, who claimed his revenge would be 77-fold, who introduced polygamy into the world and who really did a lot of bad things. And so you have the end of Cain's generation, number seven, Lamech here, an extreme example of evil and wickedness, of pride and self-service. He's truly in that genealogy about as bad as it gets. In contrast, chapter five here, the seventh man listed in Seth's genealogy is Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And so we can see you've got a seven on either side in contrast, and Enoch is the example of righteousness and humility in clear contrast to the evil Lamech. Cain's descendants plummeted further into wickedness, while it would seem the line of Seth continued to pursue the Lord. Cain's genealogy includes accolades, skills, accomplishments. They did all of these things, seemingly wonderful things with their lives, but you'll notice a few things. Number one, it doesn't say how long they lived. Moses makes no effort to say they lived this long, which is really to say their lives weren't worth keeping a record of. And in contrast, you look at chapter 5, Seth's line, it doesn't include accolades, skills, or a single accomplishment, but they did have one thing in common. All of these men had children. They each had a son. They had other children. They were all fathers. And they each continued, most importantly, the seed of the woman. 
And almost all of them lived very long, very full lives with their families. I mean, surely they had their own accomplishments. It's not to say they didn't do anything else or make any kind of progress as a society, but Moses is saying what these men did most critically and significantly was not what they did for themselves, but what they did for their families and for the line of promise moving forward. So as each man got older and older and older, they would all come to realize, number one, the curse of death was real, and number two, the promise of hope was beyond them. Surely they all thought, okay, all of these years, maybe the hope is going to come, maybe God's going to reverse the curse, maybe life will get better, maybe redemption is coming in just the next hundred years. And one by one, they all had to face the reality of, no, death is imminent and hope is still not yet. It's not yet. They couldn't outrun the curse but they could, through faithful multiplication, participate in God's work of maintaining the line of promise. And when we come to the end of chapter 5, in verse 28, we see two things. More people are dying, and yet the seed of promise continues. Looking at verse 28 of chapter 5, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Hem, and Japheth. Lamech, Noah's father, we see in the text, he believed God's promise. He understood the curse, and because of the incredibly long lifespans, it's actually possible that Lamech could have known even Seth. That's crazy. So he he could have actually had a first or second-hand account of the garden and the fall, about how life used to be, about where they came from, and how much worse things had truly gotten. And we see in the text that he clearly had this hope for his son Noah that he might bring rest, that he would bring comfort to God's people from the toil and the pain of the curse of their sin. But there's no way he could have imagined how exactly God would use Noah to bring about that comfort. And this morning, if you're taking notes, I've got three simple points for us. The first one I've already skipped over, so if you want to write that down, number one from Genesis chapter five is this. Delayed death is still death. Delayed death is still death. And number two, as we enter into chapter six this morning, is simply more people, more problems. More people, more problems. Looking at chapter six, verse one, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of man, of, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Right off the bat, in chapter 6, we are faced with a fascinating situation that I certainly didn't plan on addressing in my first sermon with you all, Um, and I don't know who to blame because Jerry and Nathan were both out of town uh, last week, but I'm going to do my best, and if you're unfamiliar with the text, uh, I envy you. For the rest of us, the, the elephants in the room are twofold. There's two things we'll address here. Number one... Who were these sons of God? And number two, how are they related or not related to the Nephilim? Starting with the sons of God found in verse two. These sons of God characters married the daughters of man as they chose, which actually in the text, again, echoes back to earlier in Genesis chapter three, when Eve saw that the forbidden fruit was a delight to the eyes. The forbidden fruit was a delight to her eyes, so she took and she ate. The three common interpretations for who the sons of God are are first, they are descendants of the godly line of Seth who married women from the evil line of Cain. So you've got the righteous men from Seth's line, evil family, Cain's line, women intermingling. Second, they were powerful men of renown, uh, infamous leaders, mighty men from Israel's early ancient history. And third, these are angelic beings. They're angels. The second option, men of renown, seems the most unlikely and lacks any real amount of credibility or scholarly support. So for argument's sake, we're going to set that one aside. The other two options before us are certainly the more more popular of the two. So either the men of Seth's line or angels. And there are, just so you all know, in case you haven't researched this like I have, uh, there are well-respected theologians on both sides of this. So, and there's a lot of grace to be had in our interpretations. But proponents of the sons of God being of the lineage of Seth, they say things like King David in the book of Psalms was referred to as God's son. He had a father-son relationship. Uh, Christians in the New Testament are referred to as children of God. We also have that father-child, father-son relationship with God as well as we even talked about and prayed about this morning. Jesus himself in the Gospels said that the angels in heaven neither marry or are given in marriage. And of course, this interpretation would be much more natural, much less complex, and therefore more easy to understand uh, considering all of the evidence. However, I found the argument of these sons of God actually being angels slightly more compelling. Truly, just slightly. So that is to say, so the sons of God here would be referring to actual angels who left God's service in heaven 
in order to serve themselves on earth. And before you call me crazy, again, in my first and hopefully not last sermon here at Milton Community Church, let me present the two main arguments for this interpretation. First, uh, the grammatical wording, sons of God, in this passage comes up five other times in the Old Testament, and each time it's, it's referring to angels. One example is in the fiery furnace, when you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they saw a fourth person in the fire who looked like a son of God. It was a divine, an angelic being. Also, it's not the same wording that's used to talk about David, who has this sonship of God in the book of Psalms. And the second big part to this argument is actually 2 Peter 4 through 10. Uh, We find Peter is presenting this argument Uh, by referencing two specific Old Testament historical accounts, and he's trying to say God knows how to be merciful to the righteous, and he knows how to judge the wicked. People can tend to forget either or, sometimes both. We think, oh, the wicked are prospering. Will they ever get what they deserve? Uh, No, they're going to get what they deserve. God knows what he's doing. Or we see our own pain and suffering and we think, well, why aren't the righteous restored? Why aren't the righteous given all of this blessing? And Peter is saying, no, no, no. God knows how to do both of those things together in his time. And so this is what he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. He says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we have Peter making this argument about two things. He'll say, God knows how to enact righteous salvation towards his people, and he is also faithful in enacting his righteous judgment towards the wicked and towards sinners. This first part, just the verses I read, is the first half of the argument, which says that God did not spare angels when they sinned, yet he did save Noah in the midst of the flood. In part two, he goes on to argue saying that God did punish the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then he also did save Lot. Clearly, we see a direct connection between Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, and it seems clear that Peter is drawing the same kind of contrast to these evil angels and to Noah in the flood. Both instances, we see a righteous punishment and a gracious salvation. And Peter is drawing a specific connection to historical accounts that his readers would have been familiar with in both instances. Furthermore, Jesus' point in the New Testament that the angels are, they don't get married, would actually further prove the wickedness and sinfulness of them, of them doing this, right? In heaven, they are in obedient submission to God the creator. They are trading that for a life on earth in rebellion. We know that Satan took on the form of an animal. We know that demons are capable of possession. 
which if this is the case, we could refer to them as demons as they have disobeyed and fallen from grace. And so it is not so far-fetched to believe the sons of God were actually angelic beings. But whether we interpret the sons of God to be angels or the men from Seth's line, the point of our text remains unaltered, which is that the world is becoming more wicked and more sinful. But we have one more thing to consider, even under that big umbrella point, and that is, who are the Nephilim? And the question we're asking here is, who were they, and what is their connection to the sons of God? One popular theory is that the Nephilim were a human race of giants. Later in the Bible, when Israel goes out to spy out the promised land, they send some spies into the land, and they come back and say, there were people there who were giants. We felt like grasshoppers before them. So that could be uh, one theory. Nephilim were just these really ginormous people. Uh, And it's clear the original audience that Moses was writing to would have been familiar with them because he doesn't say much. He doesn't say much because they would have already known. So it's likely that they would have been assuming, oh, we've heard of the Nephilim, we know who they are. It would make sense, connect them, sons of God, into this marriage for some kind of super human, supernatural relationship. But if we take a closer look at the text, we'll actually see that Moses is trying to temper imagination, which is ironic having just said the sons of God were angels, I know. Uh, But he wants to draw a clear distinction between the Nephilim and the sons of God. And he does that, if you look down, by saying the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward. As if to say the Nephilim were already here when the sons of God showed up and did their thing, and they were already there when all of that was done and over with. So the Nephilim and sons of God, it would seem to say, are not directly related. Rather, Moses is taking this opportunity to point out the Nephilim, who were, as we see, uh, they were these men of renown, they're actually not related to the sons of God. Just don't get them confused. The Nephilim were significant, but they weren't divine. They weren't superhuman or anything like that. And when you think about these, these men of renown, we might be thinking like heroes, like famous people. This is kind of actually the opposite. Uh, these were guys who were really strong, powerful. Um, they used dominance. So think like mercenaries or even villains. They weren't known for righteousness. They were known for their domineering power and aggression. So we have the sons of God, whether fallen angels or sinful humanity. And then you have the Nephilim, these these anti-heroes who are out for their own gain. And Moses is saying, those two combined prove the point that the world is increasing in corruption and wickedness. It's only getting worse. So what does God do? He drastically shortens human life. No more shall men live for centuries in their sin. It had truly become too much. Picking up at verse five, the Lord saw 
that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. When it comes to humanity, the Bible has a very clear, very consistent message. Our tendency, our propensity is towards evil. We don't gravitate towards good. We pursue wickedness. And just in case we might have the urge to question the creator God who's decided to blot out humanity and also the animals and the creeping things, even the birds of the heavens, God actually lets us in on his divine perspective. God has not only seen the actions, he's seen the wicked deeds of man, but most importantly, and what we tend to usually miss, is that he sees the depravity of their hearts. He sees what's going on under the surface, and the hearts of men were wholly corrupted, totally corrupted by evil. When man increased by direct correlation, again, more people, more problems, by direct correlation, more people, more evil. And we have to note here that the text makes it clear what led to the flood. It was the wickedness and evil of man that led to God's righteous judgment in their destruction. And so we see there's this great depravity of man on the one hand, which is now met in kind by the great grief of God. Or some translations say regret of God. We also know from the Bible that God doesn't regret things like we regret them. This is a different thing entirely. It's not a divine change of mind or just wishing, oh, if I had just done that differently. God has grief and regret because humanity, who were once the, the crown of creation, once referred to by God as very good, had fallen so far so far into sin and wickedness. The once beautiful and wonderful people of God are now only a source of continual grief to God the creator. I think this is easy for us to understand. If you've got a child who grows into the, te the crazy teenage years and they commit a grievous sin and they remain unrepentant, I mean, the parents don't just think, oh, I wish they had never been born. I wish they were just totally gone. I mean, the parents, they grieve the sin and the unrepentant heart. They don't wish they hadn't had that child. They grieve that their once beautiful relationship and family bond is now broken and shattered, lying in pieces. And here, similarly, we have God truly sad, truly sorrowful over sinful mankind. And yet, even God's righteous judgment, when it comes in its fury, is always accompanied by grace and mercy. Which brings us to our final point this morning. Number three is that judgment is followed closely by grace. 
Judgment is followed closely by grace. Looking simply at verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, rather. The first thing we see here, the Bible telling us about Noah is that he found favor with God. Favor isn't something you can earn on your own. No matter how winsome you are, no matter how charming you are, favor is always something that someone else has to give to you. You can't get it yourself. And it was God's grace that granted his favor to Noah. In verse eight, we see God gives his favor to Noah And then continuing next week in verse 9, we'll see that Noah was also a righteous man who walked with God. Who else walked with God that we've seen this morning? Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was spared physical death. He was spared the curse. Likewise, Noah walks with God and would be spared annihilation by the flood. It was grace. And not just Noah, all of his family. What would bring God to to save eight people in the midst of such great wickedness and judgment? If you're going to go through all of that trouble to wipe out almost all of humanity, why not just make a clean start? I mean, you're, you're you're that close to us going extinct. Why not just start over? Be done with it. It was his promise. It was his covenant. It was his plan. Up until now, we've seen so much death, and there's only more to come in the flood. There's no more living for centuries. No matter how long everyone lived, they all ended up dying. But God's plan was always to protect and establish the seed of the woman. And Noah was righteous, but this is actually much bigger than Noah. This was about the line of promise. God was divinely orchestrating that Noah and his family would be a critical link in the line that would truly bring relief and comfort and rest to God's people. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, we, we find the Apostle Paul using some of the same evidence to talk about the goodness of God. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not 
like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Death had infected everything because of the fall. A whole planet of living people and creatures nearly wiped out to extinction because of the pervasiveness of sin. We just think it was, it was a piece of fruit. It was one bite. Sin is always so much worse than we think it is. And clearly, death reigned. Sin was in the driver's seat. And yet, as, as pervasive and unrelenting as death was, we see here in Romans chapter 5, his grace is even more so. It was so bad, almost all of humanity is wiped out. And God says, I have more grace than I have fury. Verse 16 says, a single trespass, one, the fruit, brought about the condemnation of all But the free gift, the gift of God, brings justification in spite of of many trespasses. That's to say there's, there's no trespass, no sin, no evil, no collection of sins, no lifetime of sin that will overwhelm the grace of God's free gift in Jesus Christ. Just imagine your own life. Certainly you've sinned more than once and most accurately, hundreds, even thousands of times. So which, which is more powerful? I mean, a single sin, because of guilt and shame, can destroy a person. I mean, just destroy them. But on top of that, a, a lifetime, your whole lifetime of past, present, and future sins against the one gift of Jesus' life for you. Which is going to be stronger? It's no contest. But we we often think that the power of our sin is, is too overwhelming. We'll never get over it. We're more convinced that our sin is weightier than God's mercy and his grace. And we have to be reminded all the time, it's not. And I acknowledge that even Christians, we struggle in just our our appreciation of the victory of Christ. We struggle in finding joy and the fullness of the salvation that we have inherited. I think because we're too focused on our day-to-day lives than on the life that's to come. 
And think about it, as a, as a society, we've done a pretty good job compartmentalizing death and suffering. In our culture, suffering is something to be avoided. It's an obstacle to overcome. It could be an inconvenience. It's something that you truly just want to get it over with. Thinking about death, most of us don't spend a lot of time in hospitals, at least not because we want to. If we have an aging relative, they're often placed in an assisted living center, which I'm not knocking at all, but what does that do? I mean, we've isolated suffering and death from our lives. It's not a part of our daily routine, even just our, our daily eyesight. We just don't see it for most of us. And that's why I think so many people fail to see the, the value and the joy of the resurrection. If we don't see, if we don't feel the despair of our sin and a broken world around us, we're not going to see the need for God's redemptive salvation. We're not going to long for a world that is better yet to come because we're going to think everything right now is, is pretty good. It's going pretty well. But the pain in life the suffering and the death in life God wants to use to direct our hope to heaven. When we feel the awful reality of death and despair, we actually get a better view into the mercy of God because we're reminded that there is something better coming. We're reminded that as bad as things are now, and even though they could get worse, they will never beat out God's grace and mercy to his children. As bad as it gets, it will be better for us. So what about you today? Are you spiritually safe, resting on the boat of God's salvation in Jesus Christ? Or are you living a life that's right in your own eyes, distracting yourself from the next great reckoning? God will promise he will never flood the earth again in judgment, but we know the next time it will be by fire. And when the fire comes, the door of salvation will be shut once and for all. And for the rest of us, for Christians, confident in our faith before the Lord, are we people who walk with God? Certainly, for each and every one of us, we could always walk more closely. And we of all, all people must understand with clarity and also with great sorrow that the world is broken. It's in need of redemption and we shouldn't be ones who run from death. We should acknowledge it and embrace its bittersweet reminder that death will not have the last word. The most difficult circumstances in human life always result in one of two reactions for a person. Despair leads to running from God or it can lead to running to him. And we see life after the fall 
And after the flood was only getting worse, right? It was in this progression of just getting from bad to worse to more worse to more worse. People were always looking back to the garden, what it used to be. And as Christians now, we know that our lives are only going to get better. There will be some worse and some worse and some worse and some worse in there. But after a time, at God, God's appointed hour for each of us, it will be all the greater. Even as Noah witnessed the despair and the destruction of the world around him, I mean, he saw the world just obliterated by water while he was in that boat. He knew that God was faithfully working his promises. He knew there was hope. He knew that life and history and creation were going somewhere. He knew that God was faithful. So may God grant us in his great grace, his great mercy, would he bring us safely through the storm of our despair unto the gates of our heavenly home. Let's pray. Father God, we need this reminder so much. The world is enticing, it is distracting, not to mention the the many good gifts that you have put before us, and yet it is so easy, even so just habitual for us to take the gift and to worship it rather than the giver of those gifts. Father, convict our hearts where we find more pleasure in this world than in you and the hope that is to come. Would you strengthen, would you prepare our our souls for hard days ahead, whether through sin, suffering, and death? Would you make us ready to do hard things for your sake? Would you make us ready to have an answer for a world that grows increasingly hostile to your gospel? Would you make us people who are committed to your word and to one another? Would you even make us people who are willing to die for our faith? Would we be those who truly believe there is nothing greater than you? And would we truly believe that as good as things are now, the life to come will be so much more wonderful. We commit ourselves to you and we plead with you by your spirit to work in us. Amen.